I soon found that every spark of humanity had fled the breasts of the British officers who had charge of that floating receptacle of human misery, and that nothing but abuse and insult was to be expected. These were the words of Alexander Coffin Jr., as recounted by Greg Doherty's article on History.com titled, The Appalling Way the British Tried to Recruit Americans Away from Revolt. Coffin was an American prisoner of the infamous British prison ship known as the HMS Jersey during the American Revolutionary War. His words describe the hideous environment that American prisoners were forced to live in when they were captured and brought to the British prison ships. These British prison ships displayed ridiculously inhumane standards of living and were not unfamiliar with horrors such as rampant disease outbreaks, widespread starvation, and uncanny cruelty exhibited by the enforcers of these British prison ships. The death toll that these British prison ships brought about might have totaled over 11,000 men and boys, according to Daugherty, a death toll that even exceeded that of the Americans who died fighting on land in the Revolutionary War. Coffin documented the horrific dehumanization that prisoners of the HMS Jersey were forced to contend with, quote, to cap the climax of infamy, we were fed, if fed it might be called, with provisions not fit for any human being to make use of. Putrid beef and pork and worm-eaten bread, end quote. Suffice to say, the prisoners of the HMS Jersey were treated incredibly poorly. Author, historian, and political activist Robert Watson discussed in a speech he delivered that can be found on a C-SPAN video titled HMS Jersey and the American Revolution about how the British leaders in control of the HMS Jersey consciously used it as a tool of psychological warfare against the American people. Watson described the cruelty of William Cunningham, a commissary who oversaw prisoners on the British prison ships by saying in his speech that, quote, when a mother or a daughter or a wife would show up to see her loved one and maybe bring an apple or warm clothing in the winter, he would do the same thing all the time. He'd make the prisoners watch and they knew what was going to happen. They would have to watch. He would have her stripped, put against a pole, and whipped. Then he would take everything for himself. I estimate that Cunningham killed, in cold blood, at least 250 American prisoners during the war. Seemed like about every two weeks or so, he would be bored. He would have six prisoners brought out around midnight, and he would sit in a chair as if it's entertainment, and he would have his guards torture them until they died. End quote. Both Daugherty and Watson feature the facts that the HMS Jersey was incredibly overcrowded in their presentations. As Daugherty indicated in his article, quote, Many of the sick were left aboard the prison ships where they infected others. By one estimate, at least six prisoners died every day, and sometimes twice that number. Many of the dead were buried on the nearby beaches in graves so shallow that their corpses soon poked up through the sand. Prisoners aboard ships could see the bones of their former comrades bleaching in the sun, and skulls and other remnants would turn up for many years thereafter. George Washington, the commander of the Continental Army, wrote multiple letters to his British adversaries, urging better treatment for the prisoners. In one, he questioned why they should be held aboard the ships at all, and 
by crowding them together in a few ships bring on disorders which consign them by half dozens a day to the grave. But even his protests were to little avail. End quote. It was even challenging to escape the British prison system in the Revolutionary War. Watson described in his speech how David Sprout, the commissary who was directly overseeing the HMS Jersey, ensured that very few Americans were even able to leave his ship alive. Watson detailed the story of a prisoner exchange that took place during the Revolutionary War that meant that some of the prisoners of the HMS Jersey were to be released. According to Watson, Sprout gave quote, his prisoners a last meal, and then good luck. It turns out to be a last meal. Unbeknownst to the prisoners, he poisons the food. Almost every American prisoner died on the schooners taking them back home, end quote. The HMS Jersey and its fellow British prison ships were the home of many incredibly heinous treatments of prisoners. As Daugherty indicated, this treatment became so abhorrent that George Washington himself implored his wartime adversaries to improve the quality of their prison system. It truly was among the most inhumane and harrowing of the prison systems in recorded history. When the United States was formed following the Revolutionary War, much of its original legislation was enacted in order to prevent the British methods of tyranny from being implemented in the United States. For instance, as is documented in the JSTOR Journal article titled Origins of the Fourth Amendment by Leonard W. Levy, the Fourth Amendment, which protected American citizens from unreasonable searches and seizures, was developed largely in response to the ways in which British authorities conducted unreasonable searches and seizures prior to the Revolutionary War. One might come to believe that, as a result of the horrors that took place on the HMS Jersey and other British prison ships, the United States would create a criminal justice system that prioritizes the humanity and dignity of its prisoners and empathizes the importance of rehabilitation. However, sadly enough, that belief would be mistaken. Perhaps it should not come as a surprise that the criminal justice system of the United States was one that was cruel and inhumane. After all, as indicated by Dr. Kirk Anthony James in his article in the Huffington Post titled A History of Prisons in America, before the Revolutionary War, the, quote, American colonies rely on sanguinary punishment, such as public whippings, pillory, mutilations, and even castrations in some cases, more in line with England's abominable blood codes to address crimes and other acts of civil disobedience, end quote. The warning signs that the American criminal justice system would be one that did not value human life or dignity were clearly present before the United States even became a country. However, one could only hope that the United States, after making such a concerted effort to separate itself from England, would not follow in its footsteps of having an unfeeling criminal justice system that focused primarily on punishing its inmates instead of reintegrating them back into society. In fact, as James articulates, when the United States officially became a country, rehabilitation was seemingly far from the minds of any of its founders. According to James, who himself cited a few resources in his article, quote, In an act from 1792, it was stated that the punishment for those convicted of idleness, willingly not working, be whippings and hard labor. Vale, 2000. Generally speaking, it was said that there were, was a punishment or fine for just about anything deemed offensive, 
Efforts to rehabilitate offenders were inconceivable, as colonists had no real expectations of eradicating crime by curing or fixing offenders. The purpose was, in the end, purely retributive. Blomberg and Luckin, 2010, page 18, end quote. Indeed, it was not long before the United States' domineering principles of punishment became preeminent in the American criminal justice system. According to Carol Kamen, in her article in the Ithaca Journal titled Silence and Solitude in Auburn Prison's Early Years, in 1817, New York State Prison of Auburn opened, creating a new incarceration system known as the Auburn System. In the Auburn Prison, prisoners were stripped of their identity, only being identifiable by a number and having their hair shorn. All of these prisoners wore black and white striped work clothing to avoid any prisoners developing any distinctive identities. Such tactics of dehumanization were seemingly quite effective as the prison personnel at Auburn were mostly unsympathetic to any of their prisoners. There were multiple wardens at Auburn who were even ousted due to brutality and mismanagement, demonstrating the tactics of dehumanization that American prisons employed not long after the Revolutionary War, when American prisoners were being treated so horrendously by their British captors, and when George Washington advocated for the prison ship com commissaries to improve the quality of their prisons. As Cameron recounts in her article, a strict code of silence was enforced at Auburn. When prisoners at Auburn would travel about the prison, according to Cameron, quote, they moved together, feet shuffling across the pavement to meet its mate. Heads were kept down and eyes met the floor. The prisoners moved along, rather like a caterpillar, with one arm resting on the shoulder of the man in front of him maintaining distance between men, allowing guards to easily spot anyone trying to communicate." End quote. In John Miskell's article in CorrectionHistory.org titled John M. Miskell's Why Auburn, he explains that 173 prisoners at Auburn were whipped for talking or communicating in 1845. Prisoners at Auburn were put to work to construct various items in long and tedious workdays that were entirely silent. As Cameron indicates, quote, The Auburn system was set up to give the inmate time to contemplate his crime and to find redemption, to keep him from contamination from the crimes of other people, and to give him work that would help support the prison. End quote. However, the ways in which the Auburn system was used went against the very principles of rehabilitation, inevitably making it challenging for some inmates to find redemption. The Auburn system dehumanized its prisoners and employed insensitive tactics that did not value their worth as human beings, such as not allowing any male to reach prisoners and separating them from the outside world, meaning that prisoners at Auburn would only know if a family member had died upon their release. Major events, even the election of a new president, and family matters were completely withheld from prisoners while they were incarcerated. Suffice to say, this would inevitably not have made it easy for these prisoners to be effectively reintegrated into society. 
Kamen elaborates on the disgusting dehumanization practices that existed in many prisons besides just Auburn. Up until 1858, visitors to prisons could pay 25 cents to, quote, view the prisoners, end quote, showcasing that the prisoners were being treated as if they were animals in a zoo that were just being displayed for the public's entertainment. And... As Kamen describes in her article, the similar Pennsylvania Prison Code of Silence, which had inspired the Auburn system to adopt a similar guideline, had even led some of its prisoners to go mad due to the frightening environment that they were in. Clearly, Auburn Prison and other prisons like it at the time, in the early 1800s, adopted a very strict and cruel methodology that would have been counterproductive in trying to rehabilitate prisoners. Nevertheless, the Auburn system and prison systems like it were allowed to reign supreme over the criminal justice system for many years. United States President James Madison's endorsement of the Auburn system probably contributed to its long-lasting longevity. As Miskell recounted, the original Sing Sing prison was built by prisoners of the Auburn prison. Upon its construction, Sing Sing prison, as explained in the Sing Sing prison museum's history section, followed the guidelines of the Auburn system, quote, in which the incarcerated were confined to solitary cells at night and worked silently in congregant labor groups during the day. This system, which also employed the lockstep as a method of controlling and moving inmates through the prison grounds, gradually became adopted as the primary system for prisons in the United States over the competing solitary confinement system used at Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia." End quote. Charles Dickens himself had this to say about the use of solitary confinement in American prisons, as recounted by James. Quote, I believe that very few men are capable of estimating the immense amount of torture and agony which this dreadful punishment prolonged for years inflicts upon the sufferers. And in guessing at it myself, and in reasoning from what I have seen written upon their faces, and what to my certain knowledge they feel within, I am only more convinced that there is a depth of terrible endurance in which none but the sufferers themselves can fathom, and which no man has a right to inflict upon his fellow creature. End quote. Eventually, however, according to Kamen, by the 1850s, the punishments that had been enforced upon prisoners in the United States were viewed as inhumane. Despite the growing discontentment with the Auburn system, the conditions of the American criminal justice system hardly improved. In Vera's article titled, American History, Race, and Prison, by Ruth Delaney, Ram Subramian, Allison Shames, and Nicholas Turner, it is explained how, quote, the year 1865 should be as notable to criminologists as the year 1970. While it marked the end of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment, it also triggered the nation's first prison boom when the number of black Americans arrested and incarcerated surged. This was the result of state governments reacting to two powerful social forces. First, 
public anxiety and fear about crime stemming from newly freed black Americans. And second, economic depression resulting from the war and the loss of a free supply of labor. State and local leaders in the South used the criminal justice system to both pacify the public's fear and bolster the depressed economy. All across the South, black codes were passed that outlawed behaviors common to black people, such as walking without a purpose or walking at night, hunting on Sundays, or settling on public or private land. These laws also stripped formerly incarcerated people of their citizenship rights long after their sentences were completed. Among the most well-known examples are laws that temporarily or permanently suspended the right to vote of people convicted of felonies. End quote. After the Civil War, the American criminal justice system became very strict once again in an effort to use the legal constraints of prisons in order to restrict the freedoms of people of color as much as they could. And as Delaney, Subramian, Shames, and Turner describe, quote, from 1850 to 1940, racial and ethnic minorities, including foreign-born and non-English-speaking European immigrants, made up 40 to 50 percent of the prison population, end quote. Not only that, but prisoners began to be put to death at a rather alarming rate after the Civil War. As explained in the Sing Sing Prison Museum's history section, quote, Sing Sing Prison was also the site of the infamous Death House, where 614 executions, including eight women, by electrocution took place between 1891 and 1963, end quote. The death penalty seemingly became such an accepted norm in the years following the Civil War that the American public elected Grover Cleveland to be their next president of the United States in 1884, a man who had hanged two of his fellow human beings while serving as a sheriff in Buffalo, New York, according to David C. Whitney's book titled The American Presidents. The death penalty had been a part of American society long before the United States had even become a country. As Michael H. Reggio indicates in his PBS article titled History of the Death Penalty, quote, In 1612, Virginia's governor, Sir Thomas Dale, implemented the divine, moral, and martial laws that made death the penalty for even minor offenses, such as stealing grapes, killing chickens, killing dogs or horses without permission, or trading with Indians. Seven years later, these laws were softened because Virginia feared that no one would settle there. In 1622, the first legal execution of a criminal, Daniel Frank, occurred in Virginia for the crime of theft. Some colonies were very strict in their use of the death penalty, while others were less so. End quote. Reggio goes on to explain how, quote, The New York colony instituted the so-called Duke's Laws of 1665. This directed the death penalty for denial of the true God, premeditated murder, killing someone who had no weapon of defense, killing by lying in wait or by poisoning, sodomy, buggery, kidnapping, perjury in a capital trial, traitorous denial of the king's rights or raising arms to resist his authority, conspiracy to invade towns or forts in the colony, and striking one's mother or father, 
upon complaint of both, end quote. The death penalty eventually was applied quite liberally for a wide variety of crimes, a point which Reggio makes quite apparent, describing how, quote, by 1776, most of the colonies had roughly comparable death statutes which covered arson, piracy, treason, murder, sodomy, burglary, robbery, rape, horse-stealing, slave rebellion, and often counterfeiting. Hanging was the usual sentence. Rhode Island was probably the only colony which decreased the number of capital crimes in the late 1700s, end quote. Despite this, reforms to the death penalty began to take place in between 1776 and 800. Some skepticism emerged regarding the death penalty, especially after Italian jurist Cesare Beccaria published on Crimes and Punishment, in which he argued that one could never truly justify a government's decision to claim a life. Organizations began to be formed that called for the abolition of the death penalty. Some of the movements were strong enough that, according to Reggio, quote, In 1794, the Pennsylvania legislature abolished capital punishment for all crimes except murder in the first degree. The first time murder had been broken down into degrees. In New York, in 1796, the legislature authorized construction of the state's first penitentiary abolished whipping, and reduced the number of capital offenses from 13 to 2. Virginia and Kentucky passed similar reform bills. Four more states reduced its capital crimes. Vermont in 1797 to 3. Maryland in 1810 to 4. New Hampshire in 1812 to 2. And Ohio in 1815 to 2. Each of these states built state penitentiaries. End quote. Prior to the Civil War, the death penalty, much like the Auburn system, began to fall from the public's respect, as Reggio indicates, quote, Finally, in 1846, Michigan became the first state to abolish the death penalty, except for treason against the state, mostly because it had no long tradition of capital punishment. There had been no hanging since 1830, before statehood, and because frontier Michigan had few established religious groups to oppose it, as was the case in the East. In 1852, Rhode Island abolished the death penalty, led by Unitarians, Universalists, and especially Quakers. In the same year, Massachusetts limited its death penalty to first-degree murder. In 1853, Wisconsin abolished the death penalty after a gruesome execution in which the victim struggled for five minutes at the end of the, the rope and a full 18 minutes passed before his heart finally quit, end quote. However, after the Civil War, the death penalty once again returned. I would argue that the election of Cleveland to the presidency, someone who had put two other human beings to death, was probably emblematic of the public's increasing approval of the death penalty. As explained by Reggio, quote, In 1888, New York approved the dismantling of its gallows and the building of the nation's first electric chair. It held its first victim, William Kemmler, in 1890, and even though the first electrocution was clumsy at best, other states soon followed the lead. End quote. Cleveland's election was also relevant to the history of the criminal justice system because it represented the growing acceptance by a too large faction of Americans of the racist undertones of the United States prison system. 
Cleveland supported the Jim Crow laws that the southern half of the United States was adopting at an alarming rate, according to Matthew Rosa's Salon article titled, Sir, you're no Grover Cleveland. Donald Trump doesn't deserve two consecutive terms. While Cleveland did take some positive actions as president, such as opposing the popular United States imperialist agenda towards Hawaii, the fact that the American public elected a president who supported the Jim Crow laws demonstrates the larger downward spiral of the American criminal justice system into what became mass incarceration, which significantly impacted communities of color. According to Delaney, Subramian, Shames, and Turner, quote, the loophole contained within the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery and indentured servitude except as punishment for a crime, paved the way for southern states to use convict leasing, prison farms, and chain gangs as legal means to continue white control over black people and to secure their labor at no or little cost. Very few white men and women were ever sent to work under these arrangements. By assigning black people to work in the fields and on government works, the state-sanctioned punishment of black people was visible to the public, while white punishment was obscured behind prison walls. By many accounts, conditions under the convict leasing system were harsher than they had been under slavery, as these private companies no longer had an ownership interest in the longevity of their laborers, who could easily be replaced at low cost by the state. Although the incarcerated people subjected to this treatment sought redress from the courts, they found little relief. Time and again, the courts approved of this abusive use of convict labor, confirming the Virginia Supreme Court's declaration in 1871 that an incarcerated person was, in effect, a slave of the state. End quote. Delaney, Sabramian, Shames, and Turner go on to explain how, quote, Beginning in the 1960s, a law and order rhetoric with racial undertones emerged in politics, which ultimately ushered in the era of mass incarceration and flipped the racial composition of prison in the United States from majority white at mid-century to majority black in, by the 1990s. As in previous periods, the criminal justice system was used to marginalize and penalize people of color. In the 1960s and 1970s, as riots broke out in a number of urban centers and a wave of violent crime rolled across the United States, politicians on both sides of the aisle not only continued to link race and crime in rhetoric, they took action, enacting harsh, punitive, and retributively oriented policies as a solution to rising crime rates. As black Americans achieved some measures of social and political freedom through the civil rights movement, politicians took steps to curb those gains. In the 1964 presidential election, Barry Goldwater, Lyndon Johnson's unsuccessful Republican challenger, campaigned on a platform that explicitly connected street crime with civil rights activism. In 1965, President Lyndon Johnson declared the war on crime and perceived increases in crime in urban areas, which were largely populated by black people, became connected with race in the public's consciousness. 
Richard Nixon successfully used a street crime and civil rights activism narrative in his 1968 and 1972 presidential campaigns, end quote. The era of mass incarceration really began, however, with the Rockefeller drug laws. As Brian Mann states in his NPR article titled, The Drug Laws That Changed How We Punish, quote, The United States puts more people behind bars than any other country, five times as many per capita compared with Britain or Spain. It wasn't always like this. Half a century ago, relatively few people were locked up, and those inmates generally served short sentences. But 40 years ago, New York passed strict sentencing guidelines known as the Rockefeller Drug Laws, after their champion, Governor Nelson Rockefeller, that put even low-level criminals behind bars for decades. Those tough-on-crime policies became the new normal across the country, but a new debate is underway over the effectiveness of tough sentencing laws. End quote. Mann goes on to astutely explain how Rockefeller brought about the era of mass incarceration, saying, quote, Rewind to the 1970s. New York City was battling a heroin epidemic. There were junkies on street corners. The homicide rate was four times as high as it is today. Rockefeller, New York's Republican governor, had backed drug rehabilitation, job training, and housing. He saw drugs as a social problem, not a criminal one. But the political mood was hardening. President Richard Nixon declared a national war on drugs, and movies like The French Connection and Panic in Needle Park helped spread the sense that America's cities were unraveling. Late in 1972, one of Rockefeller's closest aides, Joseph Persico, was in a meeting with the governor. He says Rockefeller suddenly did a dramatic about-face. Finally, he turned and said, For drug pushing? Life sentence. No parole, no probation, says Persico. That was the moment when one of the seeds of the modern prison system was planted. Persico says Rockefeller decided that more progressive approaches to drug addiction has simply failed. The governor had heard about this new zero-tolerance approach to crime while studying Japan's war on drugs, end quote. According to Mann, the Rockefeller drug laws that Rockefeller called for in 1973 would subject drug dealers and addicts to mandatory prison sentences of 15 years to life, which was unheard of at the time. The incredibly strict Rockefeller drug laws even applied to individuals caught with small amounts of cocaine, heroin, or marijuana. The ideas that Rockefeller drug laws represented quickly spread to many other states. As Mann recounted, quote, white people were using a lot of drugs in the 1970s and committing a lot of crimes. Yet, the people being arrested and sent to prison under the Rockefeller laws came almost entirely from poor black and Hispanic neighborhoods, end quote. When taken as a whole, the enactment of the Rockefeller drug laws was one of the single most important causes of mass incarceration that still exists in the United States to this day. As Mann puts it, quote, 
due in part to Rockefeller-style laws, the nation's prison population exploded from 330,000 in 1973 to a peak of 2.3 million. That meant building hundreds of new state and federal prisons. By 2010, more than 490,000 people were working as prison guards, end quote. Sadly enough, while some countries have adopted more humane and functional criminal justice systems, far too many countries have taken inspiration from the United States' broken criminal justice system. As Boz Dreisiger aptly points out in her article in The Atlantic, titled, Prison, America's Most Vile Export. Quote, Prison is not only one of America's most catastrophic national experiments, it is also one of the country's most vile exports. The most glaring example of this dynamic involves the Supermax model I explored in Brazil. America invented this model. In 1787, the Quakers experimented with solitary cells at the Walnut Street Jail in Philadelphia. In 1829, Eastern State Penitentiary was opened nearby as an all-solitary facility, modeled after monasteries. Those incarcerated covered their heads with monk-like hoods and were given Bibles to read. In 1983, a Marion, Illinois prison became America's first to adopt a 23-hour-a-day isolation policy in its designated control unit. As the U.S. prison population soared and tough-on-crime rhetoric intensified over the next two decades, other states followed suit, end quote. The United States is supposed to be the shining city on the hill for the world to look up to for inspiration, and yet, in regards to criminal justice, it has ironically been the cause of many inhumane prison systems around the world. The era of mass incarceration has been notably characterized by the rampant dehumanization of prisoners. In 2013, as recounted by Andrew Cohen's article in The Atlantic titled, One of the Darkest Periods in the History of American Prisons, there came to light incredibly concerning reports in which, quote, the mistreatment of mentally ill inmates was highlighted. Prison officials have failed to provide a constitutional level of care in virtually every respect, from providing medication and treatment to protecting the men from committing suicide, end quote. Cohen provided his own poignant analysis of the situation, describing how, quote, taken together, these developments shed welcome light on some of the worst government abuses of our time and demonstrate vividly the need for enlightened policies and more human decency and accountability from prison officials. But these lawsuits and investigations and court orders also beg a critical question. If the feds are so concerned with the constitutional rights of mentally ill prisoners in state and local prisons, why is the Justice Department so unwilling to undertake an equally thorough review of the similarly dubious practices and policies now being forced upon mentally ill federal prisoners by the Bureau of Prisons? End quote. And today... We are still faced with the mistreatment of mentally ill prisoners in the American criminal justice system. Today, we are still faced with the harrowing impacts of mass incarceration. Today, we are still faced with a country that very much condones the death penalty. Today, we are still faced with a severe racial inequality in our criminal justice system. Today, our criminal justice system is more or less just as broken as it was hundreds of years ago. As a society, 
We have progressed in many ways since the writing of the Constitution, whether it be in regards to civil rights or our health regulations. However, if there is one thing that I have learned from putting together this podcast, it is that the American criminal justice system has remained largely archaic. Some elements of the American criminal justice system feel more at home with some of the ancient principles laid out in Hammurabi's code than they do in the 21st century. However, if we remember our history, if we remember the horrific history of American prisons, then we can avoid making the same ill-fated decisions that so many influential individuals in the criminal justice system have made in the previous centuries. Americans have a tendency to value the principles on which the United States was founded upon. So, with that in mind, I am appealing to that patriotic line of thought to implore Americans to recognize the serious injustices that have been present within the American criminal justice system for centuries. Yes, in some regards, the American criminal justice system has improved. However, in others, such as mass incarceration, it has arguably regressed. Overall, there is still so much work that needs to be done, and if all Americans recognize that, and recognize that we have to work together to put a stop to the cyclical nature of America's history with prisons, we can finally make the real, systematic, long-lasting change that this criminal justice system so desperately needs. Americans generally tend to value the stories of the Revolutionary War, in that spirit, I implore all Americans to remember the stories of the many American revolutionaries who lost their lives on the HMS Jersey and other prison ships due to the inhumane conditions that they were forced to endure. I implore all Americans to remember these deaths so that we can work to ensure that the United States does not continue following in the footsteps of the very tyrannical nation that it first separated itself from. Thank you for listening to Politics with Paxton. Please follow me on Twitter at PoliticsWPaxton, where you will find all the latest news, updates, and episodes of Politics with Paxton.